Welcome to Retrofitted. My name is Rebecca Godlove. My husband and I are picky about television. Despite the fact that he works for a major East Coast cable provider and we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 14,000 channels to choose from, the only time in the past few years that we've watched live TV was the occasional college football game, Go Hawkeyes, and maybe the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. We are far more likely to use streaming services, and thank goodness for PBS Kids on Amazon Prime, let me tell you. Super Y straight up taught my older son to read by three and a half, and that kind of amazingness is worth putting up with annoying theme songs and dead-eyed animated children. Now, we don't do Caillou, though, not in this house. No, not once, not ever. Caillou, I feel, might be Canada's passive-aggressive way of getting back at America for all our stupid hockey and maple syrup jokes about their country. If I am correct, I think it's pretty clear the score has been settled. We lean towards Netflix for binging shows while eating Chinese food and fending off our hungry cats with chopsticks. To date, there are about nine or ten series that we've never finished because we got distracted or got bored. Plus, we tend to intentionally avoid popular series until they've concluded because we hate waiting another week for a new episode. Uh, the exception is content from Disney Plus, naturally. If you know how geeky my husband and I are, you understand that this is a non-negotiable point. We relate to the game for Stranger Things. Well, that is to say he was. I watched the first episode myself and I was so taken by it, good wife that I am, that I waited for him to watch it until I proceeded with the rest of the first season. Full disclosure, I did not do this with Doctor Who, and I binged the entirety of the ninth Doctor's run before I confessed I'd watched it. For the sake of our marriage, I must never do such a thing again. That's fair. As someone who grew up with Winona Ryder playing the hollow-eyed Lydia in Beetlejuice, which of course I wasn't allowed to watch because of, like, monsters and stuff... Seeing her play a very believable, slightly neurotic, but fiercely loving boy mom on screen was, I loved it. And don't worry if you haven't seen it yet, although by now I feel like everyone who'd be interested is already caught up. I won't share any spoilers. I just thought that the whole world that was created was so human and so naively 80s without being hokey or, or trying too hard. Please see Wonder Woman 1984 for what not to do with an 80s mall scene. Naturally, one of my favorite things about this series is the soundtrack. I love how music is featured in a brief but sweet scene in which brothers Will and Jonathan listen to a record together. And the choice of song doesn't just give us a hint into Jonathan's counterculture personality, but also into the eerily dual nature of the Upside Down. The song, of course, is Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash. Now, I'll admit I've never been a huge fan of punk music. I can be a subversive type. My favorite professor in college referred to me as Machiavellian, but I prefer my sometimes rebellious undertones to be just that, undertones. Punk music is the opposite of subtle, and it just never clicked with me. But... 
should I stay or should I go is less political than most of the clash's repertoire and therefore more universal. It's about the frustration of indecision. And not only that, it's about another person's indecision affecting the narrator. So basically, it's the perfect theme song for teenage angst, making it a great fit for the Stranger Things soundtrack. So what is this song about exactly? According to Mick Jones, co-founder, songwriter, and former lead guitarist and lead singer for the band, quote, it wasn't about anybody specific, and it wasn't preempting my leaving the clash. It was just a good rockin' song, our attempt at writing a classic. When we were just playing, that was the kind of thing we used to like to play, end quote. Honestly, that's depressingly dull for a featured song on this podcast, but there you have it. Jones squashed rumors that the song was about his leaving the band or about being in a rocky romantic relationship. It was just a rockin' song. There is something unique about the lyrics, though. Apparently, it was decided on a whim that at the last minute, the backing vocals shouldn't be sung in English. In 1991, Joe Strummer, the band's other co-founder, revealed, quote, on the spur of the moment, I said, I'm going to do the backing vocals in Spanish. We needed a translator, so Eddie Garcia, the tape operator, called his mother in Brooklyn Heights and read her the lyrics over the phone and she translated them. But Eddie and his mom are Ecuadorian, so it's Ecuadorian Spanish that me and Joe Eli are singing on the backing vocals. End quote. Okay, that's kind of interesting, right? The song was released in 1982, and though popular, it never had a great deal of chart-topping success. It did end up on America's Billboard Top 100, but it fared dramatically better upon its re-release in the early 1990s. In fact, it hit the number one spot in the UK. Now, The Clash rarely allowed their music to be used for commercial purposes. One exception was said re-release due to the song's use in a 1991 Levi's ad. Because denim and Levi's, by extension, was a part of the punk movement, the band conceded to the song's appearance in the company's ad campaign that year. In fact, they are reportedly so protective of the rights to their music that in order to be used on the Stranger Things soundtrack, the series' music supervisor had to explain carefully to the surviving band members how the song would be used scene by scene. Apparently, they approved. So we have a sort of kind of sexy, moody punk song about a super unhealthy relationship and the inability to make a clear, definitive choice. I can't think of any biblical figure who exemplifies this song more than a man named Lot. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Yep, that Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people, Abraham, the father of the almost sacrificed Isaac, Abraham, the subject of many a catchy Sunday school ditty. Let's start at the beginning of Lot's story. He first shows up in Genesis eleven twenty-seven, when he is named as the son of Abraham's brother Haran. He's mentioned as one of Abraham's travel companions as the patriarch sought out a place to settle. After many years and many travels, both Abraham and Lot had become very prosperous men, wealthy in servants, animals, and riches, but in want of enough land for the both of them. In fact, their herdsmen and servants began to quarrel, Abraham being the bigger guy, and at this point, a good role model too, 
suggested that he and Lot part ways. There was a great deal of good pasture land outside of Bethel where they were living, and Abraham offered Lot first choice of where to move. Lot set up camp near a town called Sodom. Hold up. We are going to keep things fairly non-controversial and non-explicit right now. This episode does not contain a warning for mature content, so I will simply acknowledge that the people living there were not the kind of folks you'd want your kids to be playing with. In Genesis 18.20, quote, And the Lord said, The outcry of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. End quote. Knowing that Lot and his family had become a part of Sodom, Abraham begs God to spare the city from his wrath if just ten righteous or God-fearing people could be found within. Certainly, Abraham was counting on Lot's household containing more than many men of strong morals, so he must have assumed the city would be safe. Genesis 19 is a dramatic chapter. In it, God sends two angels, disguised as men, to Sodom. Lot encounters the men, even without knowing their holy messengers, and he treats them with great hospitality and kindness, insisting that they stay in his home for the night, enjoy a good meal, and get some rest. They agree, but when the people of Sodom hear that Lot has out-of-towners staying at his place, they beat on the door and demand that Lot sends his guests out so they can... Let's say treat those men violently, less than hospitably. Lot is shocked by their suggestion, but responds by an even more shocking suggestion. And not just to modern readers. He tries to offer up his virgin daughters to the crowd instead. Here is an absolute perversion of the laws of Middle Eastern hospitality. And it also shows that Lot is not really in a healthy place mentally, he is fiercely protective of his house guests, as tradition demands, but he's willing to literally throw his children to the wolves, knowing that the crowd might do horrific things to them. Oh, Lot, that is messed up. What's even more messed up than that is the townspeople accuse Lot of being critical and judgmental towards him for refusing to send his guests into the mob, and so then they make a move to attack him instead. Well, as it so happens, no one is kicked out of Lot's house. Remember, his house guests are angels. According to Genesis 19.11, they are able to strike the townsmen blind, giving them no choice but to abandon their attack on Lot's family. They then reveal their purpose to Lot, directing him to take all of his family members and get out of the city immediately because the angels are there to destroy it. Even though we can see that some of Sodom's sin has rubbed off on Lot, there's still some kind of undercurrent of faith in him. He doesn't question the angels or demand that they prove they're from God. He runs out and finds his daughter's fiancés. As we have discussed before on this podcast, betrothal in ancient Israel was much more akin to marriage than today's engagements are. Though the daughters had not physically consummated their relationships with the men yet, they were so close to being married that the Bible does refer to them as Lot's sons-in-law. Unfortunately, we learn in Genesis 19.14 that the men literally think Lot is joking and they refuse to go with him. Time is running out. 
When the next day breaks, the angels insist that Lot take his wife and daughters and waste no time in fleeing. And here is where Lot's thinking lines up perfectly with our featured song. Despite the fact that he knows these angels are from God and are powerful, he hesitates. Should he stay or should he go? Genesis 19.16 describes it. Quote, But Lot hesitated and lingered. The men took hold of his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters because the Lord was merciful to him for Abraham's sake. And they brought him out and left him outside the city with his family. When they had brought him outside, one of the angels said, Escape for your life! Do not look back behind you or stop anywhere in the entire valley. Escape to the mountains of Moab or you will be consumed and swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, not that place, my lords. Please listen, for your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness and mercy to me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, because the disaster will overtake me and I will be killed. Now look, this town in the distance is near enough for us to flee to, and it is small with only a few people. Please let me escape there, so that my life will be saved. And the angel said to him, Behold... I grant you this request also. I will not destroy this town of which you have spoken. Hurry and take refuge there, for I cannot do anything to punish Sodom until you arrive there. For this reason, the town was named Zoar, meaning few or small. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained down brimstone, flaming sulfur, and fire on Sodom and on Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew, demolished, ended those cities and the entire valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife from behind him foolishly, longingly looked back towards Sodom in an act of disobedience, and she became a pillar of salt. End quote. In spite of the warnings and the dire situation, Lot had to physically be led out of a dangerous, doomed place. He lost his home that day and his wife. He lost his sons-in-law and his crops, his animals, and any friends or business partners he had in the city. He had gone from filthy rich, so rich that the fields could not support the vastness of his herds, to having only two virgin daughters and a cave to hide in. Even without any sexual implications or assaults whatsoever. Listen to the other crimes committed openly, freely, and repeatedly in Sodom and Gomorrah as included in various books of the Old Testament. Pride, idleness, lying, adultery, cruelty towards the poor, and greed, with even their wine being described figuratively or possibly literally as poisonous. What made Lot want to stay in a place that, even without the threat of God's judgment, was so dangerous? He got comfortable. Despite a relationship with his uncle Abraham, who was a man actively seeking God's will for his own life, Lot didn't seem to have the same passion for the things of God. When he chose the pasture land near Sodom, he knew about the city. He knew it was Well, today we would call it not a great place to raise a family. But the scriptures lead us to infer that 
he was successful there, at least financially. If not, he would not have stayed. He found husbands for his daughters there. They had established themselves there, even if the people of Sodom never considered them anything more than foreigners. I imagine Lot's wife was well-dressed, considering all of his wealth. She probably had a very comfortable life. In fact, if she was among the people of the city who, for all their abundance, neglected the poor, then she literally had more money than she knew what to do with. Is that why she looked back? Some scholars propose the idea that she was not looking back towards the city, but only to see if her daughters were following behind her. I don't buy it. Did she not have the time to pack her gold and silk and jewelry? Did she regret not saying goodbye to the other rich ladies in her social circle? I don't pose these questions to ridicule or criticize this unnamed woman, but to reflect on human nature. We crave comfort, often at the expense of integrity. Ultimately, Lot had chosen to raise his family in a place where he, as a believer in the God of Abraham, should not have been spending all of his time. I'm not sure why he did not try to reach out to Abraham for help. With everything we have learned about Abraham's nature, and so much that I didn't even get to discuss today, I fully believe that he would have welcomed Lot and his nieces back into the fold, providing for them and helping them get back on their feet, even helping to find husbands for Lot's daughters. But Lot remained in the cave. He had escaped Sodom and fled to Zoar, then fled Zoar and traveled up a lonely mountain to live in a cave with his desolate daughters. Maybe he was too ashamed to seek Abraham's help. We don't even read that he ever really turned to God for help, despite his merciful act of sparing Lot's family from destruction. As I shared in the last episode, Lot's departure from Zoar ultimately led to the birth of the Moabite and Ammonite people through incest with his daughters. The Moabites and Ammonites were always a thorn in the side of the Israelites. Lot may have struggled his entire life with that question. Should I stay or should I go? He may have realized that Sodom was not a good place for him, but eh, it was a hassle to move on. He may have wrestled with that decision early on, but the longer he stayed in Sodom, the clearer the answer was to him. I should stay. It was the wrong answer. Thank you for joining me today. If you like the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on whichever platform you use to listen. And I'd love to hear from you. I can be reached at retrofittedpodcast at gmail.com and also on my website at retrofittedpodcast.com where you can download and listen to all episodes of the show as well as check out my latest blog posts. Last but not least, if you are considering financially supporting the podcast and its associated endeavors for as little as just $3 a month, please visit patreon.com backslash Rebecca Godlove. As always... Be wise and be well. Theme song is Synthwave by Ryan Anderson.